Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful gathered here out of love for you. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let me tell you something. I thought about when I put in the newsletter this week that the sermon title was The Money Talk, that nobody would come to church today. And I think the word got out. But, um, but anyway, I'm glad you're here because I think it's good to talk. And it's good to have the money talk. It's really good. Uh, listen, a long time ago when I was in Bryan College Station, I had gone to a, a drive-up ATM. And uh, the people who were in front of me had pulled up so that the driver's side person was at the, you know, on the side where the uh, access to the ATM was. So I had come up, and, and I was actually facing them, waiting for my turn, because I had to be on that side to access the ATM. Well, I, I'm, I'm literally looking at them as they get their slip of paper and you know stuff out of the ATM. And as I waited, I watched, and I saw that the young man in the passenger side got the printout and shook it in the face of the woman who was driving. And she wailed. All I could think was that they were overdrawn. And you know what that means. All kinds of you know, charges to get you back on the other side of things. Now, in recent years, I've heard that they've adjusted that a little bit, but still, to be overdrawn is a gut punch. I mean, it's a huge gut punch, and it takes you a long time to get things back on an even level, you know? And, and if you've ever had that experience, you know how difficult it is. And, how, and I can still see their faces. You know, I can still see their faces today when I think about that. You know, and I, it's because I've been there. You know? Well, we are going to have the money talk today. And the money talk, for some people, is worse than, than the sex talk, right? <laughs> I mean, some people would rather talk about that than talk about the money talk. I mean, you may have come to church this morning thinking we might be talking about things like the Beatitudes. Bless you. Or the prodigal son. You know, we talked about the lost coin and and all that last week. Uh, maybe you thought this week we'd go right on into the story of the prodigal son, uh, you know, being welcomed home to a celebratory banquet. Maybe that's what you came expecting, but no. I know you're thinking to yourself, of all the Sundays I've come to church, Joe is going to talk about money. How unlucky can I get? <laughs> Well, um, before you completely shut down, I want to encourage you to stay with me on this because it's really, um, there's a lot of good here. There's like a lot of good things to say about all of this. And the problem with money in our own personal lives and in the life of the church is that we don't talk about it. You know, we just don't. Well, I mean, sometimes in the church we do when we're having a drive to 
for an outreach or something, or if there's been a downturn in giving, you get to hear about that. But that's not what this talk, that's not what this money talk is about today. So stay with me, because I think you'll find that there's some really good things that we can learn. We live in a culture that is saturated with the idea of money. I mean, all our advertisements, all everything on, on social media, on everything, we are completely saturated with the idea of money. Uh, the United States and most of the world are capitalist societies. And that means, capitalism meaning, an economic system in which investment in and ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange of wealth is made and maintained primarily by individuals and individual corporations. That's a capitalistic society. And so we live in a capitalistic society, and there's good and there's challenging things about that. Uh, you know, uh, and, and frankly, even the authoritarian countries of our world that practice uh, more of a socialism uh, kind of way of dealing with the economy, they still have individuals who hold personal wealth. I mean, think of all those Russian yachts. I mean, there's still people who are benefiting in individual ways from, from, from the wealth. So what is interesting is that about every third time Jesus opens his mouth in the Gospels, he talks about money and possessions. So it must be important, right? My sweet mother, um, she, uh, she was a superb money manager. I mean, superb. I mean, grew up with, in a single income. My dad was a principal, school principal. She didn't work. She stayed home with the three girls you know, and managed the household finances completely and did it unbelievably well. She said to me one time, I wish I'd been able to go to college and become an accountant because that's what I would really like to have been. But she never told me how to manage my own money. <laughs> so, you know, I wound up like the girl at the ATM more, time, more, more than once. And it is interesting to me that we are reticent to talk about money in church because, you know, it's a very personal thing. It's very personal. And in counseling with couples who are getting married, I often tell them that there are five things that will provide challenges for your, real significant challenges for your, for your, uh, your life together. In-laws, politics, <laughs> sex, religion, and money. These are the five topics that more than anything else create conflict in marriages. So let's talk about it, shall we? We'll save those other four topics for another sermon. Okay. <laughs> of course, in my opinion, the best way to begin our discussion was with the gospel reading today. I was telling somebody before church, um, in all my time of being a pastor, I don't recall reading this text, and I don't ever recall hearing it preached on. And I don't recall ever preaching on it. This uh, parable is known as the deceitful manager. And I have never, I just can, I mean, I don't know if I have blinders on or what, but I just can't ever remember, um, you know, uh, 
preaching about it or even reading it. So um, the great biblical and the, the great biblical scholar and theologian of the early 20th century, Rudolf Bultmann, uh, said, "There is nothing edifying in Luke 16, 1 through 13. <laughs> nothing." And edifying meaning spiritual instruction that's for our enlightenment. There's nothing edifying in Luke 16, 1 through 13. And I suppose in our first hearing of it, Boltman seems to be right. But I don't think it's that we're not edified. I think we're dumbstruck by it. I mean, what parable have you heard of Jesus where he commends a deceitful person? It just flies in the face of everything we have ever thought about Jesus and, and, and what he believes to be just and right and true, right? So the question is, why ever does the master commend his scoundrel of a manager, and why, what is Jesus' point about this? I want to remind you that Jesus' parables are, are not stories that uh, are about making us feel good. They're rather designed to confront Jesus' listeners. Then and now, right? They say that if Jesus had paid more attention to telling stories that made people feel good, he might have lived into a great old age. So as Jesus tells it, the manager's world has just crumbled. He knows the jig is up, his boss is on to him, and has called him into account for his wayward ways, right? It's, you know, when you get in that kind of spot, it's, it's hard. And, and you start thinking of all the things you're going to do to survive, right? And that's what this manager does. He is about to lose his job, but he wants to make sure he's got some friends, right? He wants to make sure there's somebody going to be caring for him and inviting him to their house for dinner. And so he goes um, and has them, well, to say it nicely, cook the books, right? He has them cut what they owe, and it makes them feel good, but it, it's further squandering, further squandering the resources of the, the rich man, the owner, the master. Well, this manager is hardly a fool. I mean, it's... It's cleverly deceptive to do this, and he's ensuring for his future, but he's no hero either, right? And so that's what makes this parable challenging. Jesus' parables, as I said, were not meant to comfort us, but to confront us. And Jesus' teachings were very clear stories uh, challenging the conventional wisdom of the day. I mean, even shocking his listeners into paying attention. And one, this one about the crafty manager is among the most shocking, I think. Not only is the protagonist a scoundrel, but in the end he gets praised for it. It flies in the face of everything we understand about justice, right? Now, so what are we to say about this today? Well, consider for a moment that Jesus' very presence in the world announced a reversal of the status quo. That was what he was all about. 
if you listen to the beginning of Luke where Mary sings, she says the rich will be brought down and the poor will be brought up. And this, I will declare the day of the Lord. Right? Well, Jesus went about teaching that God was not far off. God was not far away. That God was present and the kingdom of God was at hand. And right in the midst of the people, and even within us, you know, Jesus says, the whole realm of heaven is within you. Now, that's a, a very powerful message, um, that God is present, not just tucked away behind the, the veil of the temple, but is present with us and in us and through us and between us and among us and beyond us. And Jesus worked on the Sabbath, sat down at table with prostitutes and tax collectors, all the wrong people. Jesus taught that compassion and love mattered more than keeping the rules. Rules are important, but if something's going to trump that, it would be compassion and love. He was uh, an affront to the hyper-morality and respectability of his day. And that's pretty much why they killed him. He threatened them with his odd parables. In this parable, I think we are also shocked by the reversal. In his book, The Parables of Grace, Robert Capon writes, the unique contribution of this parable to our understanding of Jesus is its insistence that grace cannot come to the world through respectability success, all the things that we value. Respectability regards only life, success, and winning. It will have no sway with the grace that works by death and losing, which is the only kind of grace there really is. All of this is to say Jesus is not telling us that we should be dishonest, like the crafty manager, but that we might be, we might consider being as creative, as clever, as inspired. In a nutshell, with this parable, Jesus urges us to be resourceful and pragmatic in our spiritual lives, just as shrewd as we often are in our economic lives, in our careers. You know, we're good at that. We're wily at that. We win at that. And, and that's what all Jesus is asking. You know, use the gifts and talents and the creativity. Be as crafty and creative, finding ways to be generous to your impoverished neighbors as you are in finding ways to advance your life. Or build relationships that might help you down the road. You know, uh, how about the marginalized, the outcast? Uh, use the gifts God has given you for those things. Apply the same effort and skill to the work of love and justice for which you were born. The emphasis is on savvy ingenuity, even if it means subverting conventions or taking risks. You love that? You know, savvy ingenuity, even if it means subverting conventions or taking risks. You know, that's what people like Martin Luther King Jr. did. That's what people who led the Black Lives Matter movement have done. And here's the deal. In our culture today that is permeated with issues of money, um, we're up against it. 
we're so, I mean, we're like fish in water. We don't even know we're in it, right? And none of us can decide whether fish breathe, right, in water or not. But, but uh, you know, we're so inundated with this. We don't even know. I mean, almost all, I learned this week that almost all of our elected officials invest or divest from, stock mar- from the stock market based on what they hear in their committee hearings, which is against the law, basically. But they manage to do it with, without breaking the law, lining their pockets. And I just want to ask you, how many yachts do you really need? I mean, once you have a nice yacht, that, you know, that's pretty much a good thing, right? I mean, after you're a millionaire, a billionaire, how much more money do you need? I mean, how many more times over do you need all the money? All the money. All the money. And why do people live this way? Because we believe, we've, been, we've been taught to believe in a culture of scarcity, that we're going to lose all this. Somebody's going to take it away from us. And that's not the vision of God. God has given us a world of generosity, a, word, a world of fulfillment. So, that somehow money and possessions, we think, will protect us, will save us, keep us from death even. And, and to be fair, there were people that fled New York who had the resources to do it during the COVID epidemic. And so we see that and we think, okay, well, right. But the question is, not for us to condemn the people with all the yachts or the millionaires or the billionaires or anything else, but to ask ourselves, what are my yachts? What am I hanging on to that is getting in a way with my relationship with God and with those whom God loves, the marginalized and the oppressed? I believe the truth in today's gospel is that Jesus is clear that money and possessions are part of the world and that we are to be thoughtful about the use of those resources. And the truth is that catastrophes and loss of jobs and loss of relationships can cause great financial stress for us. It's just the truth of our world. But God does not desire for you to give away what you have to the point that you cannot function in the world. That's not God's desire for us. It is God's desire that everyone have what they need, including you and me. I think about these migrants that were sent up to Martha's Vineyard, you know, and, and everybody was thinking, and, it, and, you know, I don't like how it was done, and I don't like how people were tricked, and I don't like any of that, but, oh, my God, the people of Martha's Vineyard. I, I said Martha's. Martha's Vineyards. Vineyard. I mean, you know, whoa. Out of their, and they're a very multicultural place and out of their resources they cared for and I saw where every single person that got off the plane got a hug you know I mean oh my gosh so I'm convinced that God is not interested in just 10% of your income God is interested in all of your income and money and possessions because God is interested in you and wants you to have abundant life and Jesus reminds us in the end that you can't serve two masters because you will love one and hate the other. And so what are you going to love? Jesus told this odd parable trying to convince us that God desires a relationship with us. And that when we live in the fear of scarcity, 
we push away that relationship. When I was a senior in high school, <clears throat> I starred in the play The Matchmaker by Thornton Wilder. I played Dolly Levi. Yes, I did. The Matchmaker is filled with monologues throughout the whole thing of different characters. And her monologue comes near the end, and she says, in part, money, it's like the sun we walk under. It can kill or cure. Yes, we're all fools, and we're all in danger of destroying the world with our folly. But the surest way to keep us out of harm is to give all of us four or five human pleasures that are our right in the world. And that takes a little money. The difference between a little money and no money at all is enormous and can shatter the world. The difference between a little money and an enormous amount of money is very slight. And that also can shatter the world. And then she concludes with these words. Money, I've always felt, pardon the expression, money is like manure. It's not worth a thing unless it's spread around encouraging young things to grow. For years, I taught, I did the money talk and talked about Malachi 3.10, which says, bring the full tithe. Put me to the test. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out an overflowing blessing upon you. And when I taught that, and I still to this day feel a little bit like Robert Tilton. Put your hand right up here on the screen. <laughs> Bring the tithe, send it to the church, and you'll be blessed overwhelmingly, right? That's what, what goes on there. But I want to tell you, I've had a change of heart because what I really think that scripture is, it's ultimately not about money. It's about our hearts. Bring your whole heart, your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength, and put me to the test. See if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings upon you. Bring your life to me. This kind of understanding is transformative. This kind of understanding is what, that in which we can take heart because God will be faithful. And here's the truth of it. Unlike our bank accounts, we can never be overdrawn on God's love and grace and mercy. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.